have you turn to the exciting book of First Chronicles, chapter 1. Some of you, do you have any, how many have ever read the book of Chronicles before? Okay, you know how exciting that is. First nine chapters are a list of names. They're called genealogies. But we're going to pull things out of there that you're going to be surprised at, but it's all there. Okay. How many actually this past Christmas season, you know, or, or have had in the past watched probably one of the more favorite Christmas movies, It's a Wonderful Life? How many have ever seen that? Some of you? No, not all of you. Wow. It's great. It's kind of a Christmas classic now. It's a story. It's a fictitious story produced by Frank Capra. And this is actually his favorite movie he's ever produced. James Stewart is the leading actor. And it's the story of a guy by the name of George Bailey. And George has this great ambition in life to travel the world. He's got the travel bug. But, you know, because of circumstances, he ends up giving his money to his brother who goes on to college and becomes very successful. And George is the brother that stays home and holds, you know, kind of the family together, the bank together, the community together. And toward the end of the movie, his uncle, who is a little bit forgetful, uh, mis misplaces some money. The bank is in crisis. George's life is unraveling. He's in absolute despair. And so there's people praying. You know, it's interesting. It kind of shows you the power of people concerned and praying. And so you hear these cry to the heavens, you know, for George Bailey. And so God hears the cry. And as George is in a state of, you know, disarray, he's thinking of ending his life. He's standing on a bridge. This want-to-be angel, he hasn't got his wings yet, if you watch the movie, he's standing there on the bridge, and the angel-to-be jumps in the water. Of course, George, if you know anything about his character, he's always helping people. He jumps over and rescues, you know, the angel wannabe, pulls him up, and they're warming up in a house, getting dried up and changing into some warm clothes, and George makes this incredible statement it would have been better not to have been born. Kind of the reflection of Job, you know. How many know that when your life is miserable, you know, and it's not worth living, you know, you just kind of feel like, I, would, I wish I'd never been born, kind of a sentiment, kind of at times could rise up within us. And it's kind of that sentiment that really I think God wants to speak to us today. Think about... Uh, the thought, what difference does our lives really make in our world? And how does it affect the lives of other people? And in the movie, you know, the angel Clarence appeals for divine assistance. And George becomes a non-entity, begins to see the world just as if he had never been born. And so the name of the town changes. And, you know, his brother who he had rescued as a child, you know, from from dying, you know, was now dead. And so, you know, his brother who later on became a fighter pilot and saved a bunch of people, they all died. And, and so there's this huge ramification because of this one life that now has not been lived. You know, and so the crooked banker from across town prevails and is named after him and people are in poverty and the girl he's supposed to marry is a spinster and on and on the story goes. And so, you know, you get this little bit of a sense that George now begins to discover what he meant to the people around him. And he began to realize that his life was truly a wonderful life. Now, Frank Capra t tells in an interview that this, as I said, this movie not only was his favorite, because it dealt with the importance of the individual and that people have value and have significance. 
And so today is we're going to look at the book of Chronicles. And we're going to look at some genealogies. And we're going to pull stuff out of there about people. What we're going to learn is that people are important to God. Amen. That's the big lesson. We need to understand people are important. You and I are important to God. How many think that's kind of encouraging? You know, that you and I are important to God. And so we look, we look at a name, but how many know that if we were to list all of our names here in the second service right now, we'd list all of our names. And somebody lived 300 years from now and they found this list of names. Do you know that even though they would read our names, and there may be a comment or two about some of us, but most of us, our names are just written down. Do you realize how rich that list would actually be when you think about all the lives in the intersection and the hopes and the dreams and the fears and all the things that go on in our lives? Isn't that kind of an amazing thing? And so what we need to see behind this list of names is that these people lived and they got married, they had children, they had, you know, all the things that we go through, they went through those things. And so this list reminds us of how important people really are. I love what Leslie Allen says. A genealogy is a technical way of condensing human experience. In other words, what he's saying is every name has a story. Actually, history is God's story as it's expressed through the lives of people. Now, how many have actually read through maybe, you know, first and second Samuel or first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. You actually read through those books. Now, how many have actually picked up? Now, uh, I didn't, so somebody told me. So don't feel bad. In the last service, only Mark saw this. But how many picked up that there's a difference between first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles? Anybody pick up there's a different tone? Anybody get the sense that First and Second Kings is far darker and more pessimistic, and First and Second Chronicles is more upbeat, upbeat and optimistic? How many kind of picked that up? Anybody? Okay, uh, I'm looking around. I'm telling you that it's that way. So now you know. I'm letting you in on a secret. Okay, next time you read through those books, start picking up. Now I'm going to tell you why they're a little different. First of all, they're written by different people. You know, God uses different authors to convey his message. Number two, they were written in a different time. And they were written with a different purpose in mind. Now, you can actually look at history and actually interpret the meaning of different events in different ways. And how many know people do that all the time? And they're pulling out different things to make a point. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. <clears throat> Number one, in the biblical books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, they were actually written during Israel's exile period. Now, little background, you may not understand that, but the nation of Israel actually had gone into, they were removed from their own homeland by a world-conquering power called Babylon. And they were removed from the land of you know, Judah for 70 years until the Persians overtook the Babylonians and re-helped them you know, recolonize them back to their homeland. Okay, follow that story a little bit. Not all of them went, but some of them went back. But the question that was burning in the minds of the people and the author of First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel was really, the issue was in their mind was, why are we in exile? That was their big question. How many have ever wondered the why question in life? When you have bad things happen, how many have ever said, why is this happening to me? Anybody ever asked that question? You know, 
Okay, so he's trying to answer that question. Why has God allowed people more wicked than themselves to destroy their way of life? Why were they in exile? And here's the answer. Using their own history, the writer points out Israel's unfaithfulness to God as the reason for their exile. In other words, for hundreds of years, they were not keeping God's covenant. They had failed to do that, and though God had been faithful to them, they had been unfaithful to God. So that's why it's a little darker in tone, because the the writer keeps pointing out, they did this, and this was bad, and they did this, and this was bad. And then in the chronicler, he kind of glosses over some of the sins of some of those people. Does that make sense? Or he, he brings in something that the kings doesn't bring in. Like Manasseh, who was uh, a really evil king, and that's just before the exile. When you read it in Kings, he didn't do anything right. But in Chronicler, he brings out the fact that he repented while he was in exile in Babylon, humbled himself. And, you know, it's really fascinating how these writers bring out different things. So what was the real issue uh, for the Chronicler? And, and what was his purpose in writing? So he's writing after the exile. And so the, nation, the people are now back into the promised land, and he's writing to a restored community. They're, they're, they're now further along in their history, but there's something going on in their lives, and it's simply this. They were once a great nation, but now they're a remnant of what they once were. How many have ever had an experience in life where you've done the wrong thing? And then, you know what? You've experienced loss. Anybody going through that? Yeah. And so this is kind of, he's writing to this group of people who are dealing with significance issues, who are wondering, you know, you know well, can God ever forgive me? Can we ever get back to where we once were? Isn't that, that's kind of whole different issues. And so I'm beginning to show you, you know, the purposes, the differences in these purposes. You know, as I, you know the, the burning issue is the question of continuity with the past. Is God still interested in us? Is God still interested in me? I fail God. Does God. Well, can God forgive me? Can God ever use me again? You know, when you make a mistake, sometimes you wonder, you know, have I blown my chance with God? Can God ever use me again? Isn't that a good question? And this book is going to answer that question. And I think it's true. I've wrote down after failure, we may wonder if God cares. We may wonder if God's finished with us. We may wonder... His his promises before our failure still in effect. And I want to just say to you in a very uh, encouraging way, God doesn't change. You know what? We are up and down. God is the same. You and I falter and fail, but God makes a promise. And if you and I embrace it, God will carry it out. God will somehow work even in the midst of our failure for good. And that is so encouraging, and we need to hear that. And so the chronicler is actually bringing this to light as he speaks. Now, the main concern of the chronicler is to show them what happens when we're faithful. And so the theme of the chronicler is simply this, that we would seek God. And whenever the nation of Israel sought God, good things happened. And whenever they forsook God, bad things happened. So there is a little sense that they're trying to teach us Please be faithful and do the right thing. Because even if we go through a challenging moment, even when we're seeking God, God will be with us in that trouble. 
Even when Hezekiah restored the temple, even when Hezekiah served God, 14 years into his reign, he was attacked. But guess what happened? The, ki- the Assyrian kingdom could not overtake the little nation of Judah because God protected them. Isn't that an amazing story? And so what God is saying to us is, listen, just because you're seeking God doesn't mean you won't have any problems. It just means that God will help you in an unusual way in your trouble. And we need to know that. So let's take a look as we look at this first Sunday of the year. I've kind of chosen um, a text from 2 Chronicles 11, 16. We'll come back to 1 Chronicles. But here's kind of the theme of the books, the two books. It says, those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now, I believe that What the chronicler is telling us here is he wants us to set our hearts on seeking the Lord. How many picked that up? It says those that did that, you know what? God is going to do something. So I wrote down, what does it mean to set our hearts on seeking the Lord? Well, it certainly suggests a proper desire and a proper attitude. In other words, I'm making a commitment to do something. I'm going to make an effort to do something. Okay, you know, it's not a passivity that sometimes we get in as Christians because, you know, we understand God is the gracious God and he gives us wonderful things. But, you know, God also says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that God is a rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek him. And so God is encouraging us. The life of faith is a life of diligence towards God, that we're pursuing after God. And it's also interesting that to seek God is a detriment to fulfilling the desires of our sinful nature. In other words, you know, when I walk in the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.16, it says, I will not fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. So if I'm doing the right thing, I won't be doing the wrong thing. I mean, no, that's true, you know. But you say, yeah, but sometimes I'm trying to do the right thing, Pastor. Yeah, but if you don't do it in the right way, it's also the wrong thing, you know. Sometimes you can do the right thing in the wrong way, and it becomes the wrong thing. You know, we all had that experience. So what am I trying to say here today is that if we're seeking God, well, that's a good thing to be doing. And that we have to make this effort. And if we do, I believe God will be with us in a very significant way. Now listen to what it says here in Second Chronicles regarding King Rehoboam. It's, because he was committed to doing, he was committed, he committed evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So there's a, what is he doing? He's putting this, this connection between seeking God or not seeking God. And if I don't seek God, it's easier for me to do the wrong thing. He's trying to set that picture up in our minds. And if you keep reading through the Chronicles, you get that. Well, Jesus says it. That's in a negative way. Jesus says it's in a positive way. I love the Beatitudes. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, can I just go back and say, isn't that kind of an oxymoron? Isn't that kind of the opposite of what you think it would be? Here's a person who's hungry and thirsty, and they're full. How many think that's kind of interesting? But I want to point out to you that this is not as strange as you might think it is. Because when I live now, and I've lived most of my life, actually all of my life, but I've visited away from North America. But in North America, we live in a very prosperous society, do we not? And what I've noticed is even though we are full, we're not very hungry, and we're not very thirsty most of the time, we're not very satisfied most of the time. 
I see a lot of dissatisfaction inside of people. Isn't that fascinating? And yet it says here, those who hunger and thirst are the ones who are satisfied. But it's not hungering and thirsting after more things. See, that's the problem. When we hunger and thirst after what's wrong or the wrong things for us, it doesn't really satisfy our soul. So the more we possess, the more we acquire, doesn't bring about true satisfaction. It just brings temporal satisfaction. Isn't that true? But you know, when we're hungering and thirsting after the true things, the eternal things, the spiritual things, our soul is now satisfied. But there has to be that hunger. And the hunger suggests that I have to do something again. I'm hungry. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm going after something. And that's the whole point. So it's talking about a mindset, an attitude, a commitment, a desire to, pr- to pers- uh, pursue Almighty God. Now, in the next little bit here in our church, And I love this about our church because we do this about three times a year. We set aside a few nights for prayer and fasting. And we have chosen next this coming Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to do that. I can't think of a better way of starting a new year than to seek after God. And so we've created that structure that we can do this collectively. Now, I know you say to me, well, pastor, I can do it privately. I go, that's true, you can. But there's something profound about doing it in a group. It's something that we're doing it together in community. We're praying together. And I believe it encourages and inspires us to do it. And so we actually make an effort. We set some time apart here at the beginning of this year for the next few nights to seek the face of God. And we actually hunger. That's what fasting is about. We actually abstain from something. It's called eating, you know? And, that's, and I'm not telling you how many meals to miss, or I'm not telling you to miss meals, I, you know, because you can do a partial fast. So some people say, well, I can't, I have to eat, Pastor. I've got a medical condition. I say, well, yeah, by all means, please. But you can stop eating all the sugars you're eating. You know, some of us, and I'm including myself in that, that, that means I'll be in withdrawal because I've probably got, you know, to get rid of some of the toxins in my body over the last two weeks, right? We've probably eaten pretty good in the last couple of weeks, have we not? Most of us? Some of you are probably very disciplined. You didn't do that. But for the majority of us, we've probably ate something we shouldn't have or ate more than we should have. And so this is not going to hurt us too badly, I don't think. Okay. So here in First Chronicles, we start with a genealogical list and it focuses in on a few people, and that's what we're going to do, just a few of them, and get an idea of the question that's being asked. Is God through with us? Does he have something in mind for us? Is there a sense of continuity with yesterday that's going to impact tomorrow? Not just for these people that it's been written for, you know, thousands of years ago, but I'm talking about right now. Is there something we can gain from this? And I think the answer is, of course there is. That's why we have the Bible. It's a very interesting book. Okay, the story surrounding the people in the Chronicler's genealogical list will help us rediscover our own sense of identity and significance. And I think there's like three powerful lessons that the Chronicler wants us to hear, to remind us that God is not done with us. And we need to know that. And so I want to look at these lessons. And just to remind us, the first one is simply... uh, the lesson we need to understand, particularly in a difficult moment. The first one is, who am I? And I don't know if you've ever gone through a very challenging moment in your life where your identity was actually challenged. I've had those moments. 
know, how many have ever experienced personal failure in your life and you began to question yourself? Anybody here going through that? Okay, I have. You know, I, I, you know, I raised my hand. Most of you don't. I just kind of wonder sometimes, God, why is it that pastors have to experience so much? Is that so that it helps us talk to the rest of us? I don't know, you know. That's just my comment to God while I'm preaching here, you know. <laughs> but there's an importance in the area of significance. And I think it's critical in our sense of well-being. Who am I? And so a lot of people spend time trying to figure out who they are, and they look at their genealogical tree. They'll try to figure out who their ancestors were. It's kind of fun, you know, Ancestry.com, you know. Years ago, there was a guy that wrote a book called Roots. It became a movie. This West African guy found out, you know, he was descendant from slaves that had been shipped over to the United States, you know, from West Africa. You know, my aunt was a library researcher, and she found out, and she traced my, my she's on my mom's side, it's my mother's sister, Traced us all the way back to the 11th century. That's quite a ways. You know, it's hard to get documentation when you go back far enough. Like she said, I've got documentation until the 14th century. That's the 1300s, if you don't know. The 11th century is in the 1000s. So she said, I go, tell me anything. You know, I tried to get her to talk about it. I don't know. She's, I gotta, I'm hoping that when she, I got to bug her again and try to read some stuff. But she gave me a few little nuggets. She said we, we were from France, Normandy, and... Then I started realizing, how many know what the Northmen or the Normans, they're actually Vikings. I don't know if you know that. So I'm, I don't know if I'm part Viking now or if I'm part of the clan, the Franks who became the French, you know. I have no idea. But it is kind of fascinating to go back and trace your ancestry back a ways. But, you know, here's even what's even more exciting. Why is the Bible, with all of these lists of names, meaningful to us today? Well, the good news is if you're a child of God today, you've been grafted into a tree. You've been grafted into Israel's tree, and all of these people are now your spiritual ancestors. So let's take a look on this journey, who our spiritual ancestors were, and what they did and what they didn't do, okay, and learn something about them and something about ourselves in the process. And so here we're going to find a rendering of the names of the forefathers of the people of God. So in light of our own weaknesses and struggles, in light of all the people on the planet, it's overwhelming to think that we are a people that God chose. I like that. God picked us. You know, we're kind of like the people standing in line and God's forming a team. He goes, I'll pick you, I'll pick you, I'll pick you. Hey, I got picked. Now, that may not mean a lot to you guys, but I get really excited. I got picked to be on God's team. So if you're a child of God this morning, you were picked to be on God's team. How many go, I like being on God's team. It's the winning team. Yes. Amen. I like that. Okay. And then God reminds the Israelites, because you know, sometimes when we're on God's team, we start strutting our stuff. You know, hey, look how great we are. Then God has to remind us of a few things, like he did the Israelites. You know, he says to them in Deuteronomy, he says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. He goes, I didn't pick you because you guys were great. Actually, you were the least. Oh, that kind of humbling. How many go, yeah, he picked us losers is what he's trying to say. <laughs> Thank you, God. You know, but he's going to make us winners, so don't get excited about it. And he says, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that you brought you up with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of, uh, the king of Egypt. 
Wow, God delivered them out of slavery. And I want to declare to you today that God has delivered you and I out of the slavery called sin. He's brought us out of that slavery. He's, a, he's one who can deliver from addictions. Yes, hallelujah. He is the one who delivers people. He redeems us. He can restore us. He can renew our lives. This is so encouraging to know that this is the God that picked us you know, and Paul reminds the New Testament believers who primarily Gentiles, and he says this, you know, God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And I think this ought to continually bring a sense of incredible gratitude to our hearts as well as a sense of wonder. You know, we should go, wow, why did God pick me, you know? And that's what worship really is. It's wonder. You know, I'm just kind of marveling sometimes. You know, God, God kind of just snatched me. I mean, my life was a mess before I became a Christian. I can just tell you that right now. God just rescued me. Yay, thank you, Lord. So, and then he says to these, you know, Romans later on, well, let's go back, I'll get there in a minute. But he says this to, uh, in John's Gospel, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's what he said to his disciples. I picked you. I like that verse. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Every person selected in the genealogy had a purpose. Now notice in chapter 1, verse 43, this is a fascinating little list here. It doesn't even fit in with Israel. You know, I used to wonder about this. Look what it says here in verse 43. These were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Excuse me, I thought this was the list of our spiritual forefathers. Well, you know, sometimes these writers would set up a contrast and all of these kings, if you read them very carefully over the list, I was reading them really carefully this morning, verse 43, verse 44, verse 45, verse 46. You know what they were? A list of people, but they weren't connected. They were coming from different cities, from different fathers. And what it was said, there was a discontinuity. Okay? There was like, how many know that when there's discontinuity, that means there was probably rebellion, there was probably assassinations, there was probably destabilization. It wasn't smooth transitions. But what does he do? He puts a list of all of these people. And what the writer has in mind is to bring a comparison between the Edomites and their kings with the kings of Judah. And in the picture of unrest and unrelated kings versus David's dynasty that lasted from generation to generation, once again, an expression of the grace of God in the life of Judah. Now, how many, when you've read your Bibles and you've noticed this, when the northern kingdom separated from the southern kingdom, the ten tribes went north, and they started under the leadership of Jeroboam? How many remember now what happens? All the kings from that point on are all evil. They all follow the god Baal. How many remember seeing that? Not one, not one good king from the north. They were all unfaithful to God. And you know what? Those kings, if you study it very carefully, you're going to find they lasted maybe two or three generations. Then they were assassinated and a new, new group came up. And so you have this succession of dynasties coming up through the northern kingdom. But you know what you notice in the south? Regardless of the kings followed God or not, they always made sure there was a son of David on the throne. How many think that could only be happening by the grace of God? God kept them. God created that dynastic succession. Why did he do that? Because he said, I'm going to raise up one from David, eventually whose name was Jesus. And God kept that line going. What a beautiful picture. So you say, what difference does all this make to us? You know, we're Gentiles. We've been kind of grafted into this 
you know, this shoot, this olive shoot. We're kind of like a wild olive shoot being grafted in among the others. And now we share in that nourishing sap from the olive root. We've been brought into this spiritual lineage, okay? What, what difference does this make? I'm glad you asked that question. Because I'm going to give you four applications, okay? Number one, we ought to rejoice that God elected us. Our significance does not come because of what we do in life, our jobs or our resources. Rather, it comes from being in Christ. We are in relationship to God. That's the number one thing. How many are happy about that? I'm real happy. I'm related to many of you now, spiritually. You're my brother and sister. Isn't that great? We're related. We're family. We've been grafted in. Here's the second application. We can learn from the victories and defeats, the good decisions and the poor decisions of those who have gone on before us. How many really appreciate that? What happens when I don't learn from other people's mistakes? I make them. I suffer. It's a lot easier in life to learn from other people's mistakes and not copy their bad decisions. How many go, thank you very much? <clears throat> That's why I like reading the Bible every day. I want to learn what the bad decisions are and what the good decisions are. I want to follow after the people that make the good decisions. I want to avoid the bad decisions. I don't want to make those mistakes. I make enough on my own. I don't need any help. I need a little help to make the good decisions. How many say amen to that? Isn't that true? Okay, so we can learn from that. Number three applications. We can be confident that God is in control throughout the pages of our lives. He's working out his eternal purposes. All we have to do is obey him and follow him. Isn't that amazing? When you read the stories, everybody has a different life. They're all doing different things. And you can see some that are following God and some that are not following God. And I'll tell you, it's really a great story to follow and watch and see what happens. Every life is important to God, and every life has a purpose. And so does your life. And so does my life. Is that encouraging to you? God has a reason why you're here. Do you know when he saved you, it said that he prepared good things in advance for you to do. Do you know that this year, God has some things in mind for you to do? God has some good things for you to do this year. How many say, Lord, I'm a candidate. I just want to do the good things you want me to do this year. I want to say the right things you want me to say this year. I want to bless the people you want to lead me to this year. I want to be used by God this year. Matter of fact, my prayer is God used me more in 2016 than you did in 2015. That's my prayer. God continue to work mightily in and through my life and in and through the life of this church family. You know, I, I want to, I'm believing for greater things. How many are going to join me, Pastor? I'm going to join you. I'm going to believe for greater things. I'm going to believe we're going to see more people saved in 2016. I'm going to see more lives saved, more relationships salvaged. I want to see more healing. I want to see more people set free from addictions. How many say, I'm going to agree with you, Pastor? I want that for other people. I want people to do well. Okay. Number four application. One of the things that comes from a genealogical list is that the fact that they're down. There's names here. People are important to God. God keeps track of things. How many like that? You're not, just, you know, you're not just living out here in limbo and nobody cares about you. Some of you may feel that way, but I want to declare to you today, God cares about you. And he knows your address and he knows all about you. Hallelujah. And I like that about God. He knows stuff. And he cares about us. So let's move on with the chronicler here. He wanted the people in these post-exilic days who were insecure in the shadow of a great empire, the Persian Empire, to realize that they were the significant people. Isn't that amazing? 
You know, how, isn't it true that in, in every culture, uh, usually in the drama of the current events, the focus, oh, sorry, let me go back here. Oh, I'm going to skip that. That's okay. Usually in the drama of current events, the focus is on people deemed important by our current society, right? I mean, who are the newsmakers? It's not us, for the most part, right? Famous people, powerful people, rich people, right? Talented people. <clears throat> now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, here's the good news. A lot of people today are the, that are the somebodies in God's books, they're the nobodies. And a lot of people today who are the nobodies in God's books, they're the somebodies. How many know when Caesar Augustus rose to power, you know, in Rome, Mary and Joseph didn't come up on the highlight reels of the Roman Empire? They were the nobodies in a backwater province called Judah, and yet in God's economy, they were the main stars. And Caesar Augustus had a little role in the story. In the days of Caesar Augustus, that was his role. That's the press clipping he got. He lived. Isn't that true? I've read the Bible. You know what that tells me? Be careful. The nobodies usually are God's somebodies. I like that. Anybody else like that? So you and I who are serving God faithfully and maybe people don't see what we're doing, maybe they don't see the sacrifices and the effort we're putting in and you know, we're sacrificing ourselves and spending our lives, God goes, those are my somebodies there. And all these other people that are flaunting things and they're on you know, entertainment today and all the other good stuff, you know, God goes, those are the nobodies. They're the nobodies. I don't know about you guys, but I kind of like that. As a matter of fact, one guy so ap amply put it here, after nearly 2,000 years after Christ, we usually name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. <clears throat> we talk about Moses and only know the name of Pharaoh through the history books for a movie. That's the truth. So let's get everything in the right perspective here. Let me move on to the second point. Who are we? Well, the second one is God's grace in spite of our failures. You know, the Bible is a story of continuous grace. And what that means is God keeps showing us favor even when we don't deserve it. You know, he's the one that keeps forgiving. He keeps restoring the image of Christ in our lives. He takes beauty from ashes. He brings joy out of our tears. The chronicler has his favorites from among the tribes and gives it does not give everybody the same coverage in First Chronicles. As a matter of fact, most of the coverage goes to the tribe of Judah. How many think, well, that's not very fair, Pastor? You know, pride in place is given to Judah. It comes first, and one-third of all the tribal material is devoted to it. And the question is, why? For one thing, most of the post-exilic state of Judah belonged to this tribe. There is much more than tribalism here, though. Judah had remained loyal to the Davidic line of kings when most tribes succeeded and founded the northern kingdom. In other words, how many know that the ten northern tribes basically rebelled when they went with Rehoboam? And they began to worship false gods. And God said, they were unfaithful to me. Isn't that amazing? And the tribe that really got blessed was Judah because it remained in the south. And it, you know, David obviously was from the tribe of Judah. And it was that tribe that God honored and blessed. Isn't, how many think that's interesting? So God honors the faithful people. They may not be the biggest group of people on the planet, but God honors them, and they get God's special attention, especially when it comes to what he wants to talk about. But even the special tribe of Judah had its mistakes. 
immediately we're struck with the story of sin in the chosen line. How many know it would be just so great if nobody ever messed up? I probably wouldn't have to work so hard. You know, right? As pastors. But you know, it's amazing. Even children of God blow it. And I've been a pastor for a long time, and I can tell you, sin enters into people's lives. It enters into my life. It enters into all of our lives. And so we have failure in our lives. And we find it immediately here when we're looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 3. It says, The son of Judah, Ur, Onan, and Selah, these were the three born to him by a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Wow, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? This guy was doing his own thing, and God didn't like it, and he just took him off the planet. Premature death. Boop, gone. You know, and if that was not bad enough, we continue with the genealogy in verse 4. Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Judah, and Judah had five sons in all. Now, when you read this, you don't fully get, grasp the story until you're a really, you know, you know the Bible story. You have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. You've got to go back to chapter 38, where you pick up the story and it fleshes it out in detail. And here's the story, in essence. You know, not only there was certain laws that they had. If a, if a man was born, uh, married to a woman and he died, the law was that his brother was to take her as his wife. Okay, that was a Levitical law. And so Judah obeyed it, gave his second son to Tamar, his daughter-in-law. He died. He wasn't a good guy either. For some reason, God took them. They died prematurely. He was gone. So now he has a third son. We remember the list, Ur, Onan, Selah. Well, Judah gets nervous. I'm not going to give her to my third son. I mean, she's not batting too good right now. You know, I give her to another boy. I've had two sons dead. I'm not interested in giving her to my third son. But he tells her he's going to do it. Yeah, when he gets a little older, I'll give him to you. And he doesn't do it. And then his wife dies. And so Judah decides... One day, he's, he, you know, he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a fling with someone here. And he's going by the wayside, and Tamar recognizes he's not fulfilling his obligation, so she dresses up as a prostitute, sits by the roadside, fully covered, and she barters with Judah because he wants to solicit her services, and she names a price, but he doesn't have the, you know, the livestock available to give to her because they didn't have money in those days. She says, oh, that's okay. You can give me your signet ring and your staff, which were symbols of his identity. She took them, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant. And then he went to, you know, retrieve his signet ring and his staff, but he sent a friend, and no prostitute was hanging where he found her. And then they went to the town and said, hey, where's the prostitute that hangs around this town? They said, there isn't one. Oh, well, then Judah goes, let's not make a big deal of this. Now he's kind of embarrassed. And so that was the end of it until his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And of course, now Judah, in a very self-righteous way, says, well, you know what the law says? We've got to kill her because she's, you know, been, you know, unfaithful. So she sends a little message to him. She goes, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant, but here's the guy that did it to me and sends his staff and signet ring. Youch, Katya, right? And so he says in chapter 38, my daughter-in-law is more righteous than I am. He got... Now, I'm saying that story so that you can read here something that the chronicler is trying to say. 
So the chronicler and his readers knew the ruling of Leviticus 20.12, the death sentence now should have been applied to both Judah and Tamar, but it wasn't, okay? This makes his placing the cases of verse three and four together very striking. I'm quoting from Leslie Allen, he's a scholar. The wicked son loses his life while the wicked father and wife not only have their life spared, but they now win a role that leads to the line of David and eventually the greater David, Jesus himself. I added that. There's, this is a mysterious grace at work here. When the chronicler underlines by his dramatic contrast, human failure is woven into the ongoing purposes of God. So what is he saying? Yeah, sometimes God just deals with people a certain way and there's judgment. And how many say that was rightfully so? The first two guys deserve to be judged by God. But so did Tamar and Judah, and God showed grace to them. You know, isn't it amazing? When you really get down to it, can I just say this? It's going to be a shocking statement. Can you hold on to your seats? Our entire world needs to be judged by God because we've all sinned against him. And the death penalty for our entire planet should be death. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you and I can have God's forgiveness and he can give us life. How many go, wow. We should be going, I'm in awe of this. You know, when we come to a service and we're worshiping God, we should be thinking like, wow, God. You picked me. You've forgiven me. You showed me grace. What I deserved was judgment, and you gave me forgiveness. You know, I love what John writes to us. He says, you know, if we actually confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to just make a declaration to us. You know, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to be cleansed. You know, it's one thing to know your sins are forgiven. It's another thing to have your conscience cleansed, that you're not walking in shame and guilt. I want to declare to you, when Jesus Christ forgives you, he takes away your sin. You are now free to start over again. You, you know, I love Monopoly. There's that little card you pick up. It says, do not stop at, get out of jail free, you know. I love that. You get out of jail for free. You know, and you're free. I think that's awesome. We get the get out of card jail. I mean, uh, you know, that card for free. <laughs> we get out of jail for free. Okay, but let me just skip. We could talk about the tribe, but I'm running out of time. So I'm going to go to the third vignette. I like this one. It's a little story how God works through our pain. You know, there's hope for us who have a, had a bad start in life. Some of us, not everybody starts equal. Does everybody know that's true? Not everybody starts at the same place in life. Some people start out, you know, their parents are godly. Maybe they have a lot of resources. Maybe they're, you know, pay for their education. But then there are people, they start out, their home is not a godly home. You know, they're taught all the wrong stuff. They get into all kinds of trouble. But listen to what I'm going to tell you, and I love this. You know, some of you know the famous author, Robert Louis Stevenson. Treasure Island. You ever heard of that guy? He's written some other famous books, but this is what he says. Life does not consist of having a good hand at cards, but of learning how to play a poor hand well. You have to take what God deals you and make the best of it. And the fact that you're here today, you have an opportunity to take whatever hand's been dealt with you and begin to play it differently. 
Isn't that an amazing thought? That God will help you play the hand you have. You know, the chronicler would have agreed and added that in the game of life, an essential part of learning to play is learning how to pray. That you should think about because that's so critical. As a matter of fact, in 1 Chronicles 4, 9 to 10, I love this story. It's the story of Jabez. It says Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez saying, I've given birth to him in my pain. Now you have to understand Hebrew people, when they named a child, the name was very significant. Usually it was kind of what they thought about this child. And you know what? You can tell she had a bad experience at birth because she named him, you're the son that's caused me all this pain. His name meant pain. So every time he walked and they said Jabez, they were just basically saying, you're a pain. Now how many know that that's a name you would not like? You know, you're being reminded all the time that you're creating other people's pain. You know? It's not something he really enjoyed. And so Jabez was dealt a bad hand. But I love what he does with it. Well, how does he handle that? Well, the Bible says, he cried out to the God of Israel, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from pain or harm or evil so that I will be free from pain. And God did what? He granted his request. He said, okay, my mother started me off wrong, but God, get me right. And I want to just declare to you today that even though you may have had a difficult start, you can get it right. You know what? God can overcompensate for your bad start. You know, I've seen a lot of people start good and end poorly. How many have seen that? I've seen that often. People that had every possible benefit and just frittered it all away. But I want to say to you today that if you and I will seek God, no matter what kind of position you're coming out of, God will turn your place of sorrow and pain and bring it to be a place of blessing. And I know that because I've experienced it in my own life. So I can say that with absolute confidence. You know, the secret to a life of blessing is getting to know the one who has the ability and capability to bless. He cried out to God, and Jabez set his heart on seeking the Lord and was kept from evil. I love that. Not only was he kept from evil, he was blessed. But let me move on to the third thing. Not only who we are, how God's grace comes in spite of our failures, but the importance of our faithfulness to God. That we would walk with him and do his will. Negatively, we see what happens to the chosen people who are unfaithful. Whenever we make poor choices, we actually forfeit some of the blessing God wants to bring into our lives. Think about, you know, the first son of Jacob. His name was Reuben. In Chronicles, it says this, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical records in accordance with his birthright. Wow, that's strong, isn't it? You say, well, where's this? What's well, found in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. It says, while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. That moment cost Reuben his birthright. Now, is Reuben in heaven today? Yeah, he's a patriarch. You know, he's a believer but he lost something. And I'm gonna just say something to all of us. You know, sometimes people have this cavalier attitude towards God. It doesn't matter what I do, God will forgive me. Anybody ever heard that? Can I tell you what'll happen? When you have that attitude, you're losing something. Because the moment you sin, you forfeit something God had in mind. Now, he, he can forgive us. 
He can, he can still work in our lives, but there's a penalty. There's always a consequence. You know, David was forgiven when he slept with Bathsheba, was he not? He didn't lose his kingship, but you know what he did lose? He lost his family. Because every one of his kids copied his bad behavior. And that it just created havoc in his family. So I'm just pointing out to us, don't get a cavalier attitude towards sin. Yes, God is a forgiving God. Yes, God can restore our lives. But you know what? When we do these things, it has a very negative impact. You know, God will allow consequences to come as a result of our poor decisions. When we repent, he tempers them with his grace, but he does not totally shield us from all of consequences. And we need to know that. Then in the next verse, I'm skipping over this. I already talked about it. In 1 Chronicles 5, 2, it says, And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers, and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. Isn't that interesting? So it didn't go to Joseph, which is very fascinating. It didn't go to Judah. We're talking about Judah here, but it jumps over to some of the northern tribes, to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who became, you know, jo- jo- Jacob actually treated them as his own sons. He gave them, you know, a double portion. Joseph got the birthright. Why did Joseph get the birthright? I'm glad you asked that question. Because character is the issue with God. As the close of Genesis reveals, Joseph was a man of integrity and character. The foundation of an enduring spiritual legacy is character. That's what God is interested in, by the way. You and I might be interested in all kinds of other things. God is only looking at one thing. Are we becoming like him? That's what he's interested in. See, that's why being godly is so important, because the word godly means to be like God. He wants us all to be chips off the same block. He wants all his kids to look like him. He wants us to reflect who he is to our world. He wants us to be like him. I think that's beautiful. And you know what? God is a person of immense character. Uh, You know what? Faithfulness to God is the key to the development of godly character. Now you know why faithfulness is so important. When you read the Bible, you're going to find out that God is really hung up on being faithful. Remember at the very end, Jesus says in this one parable, when we get to God, what's he gonna say? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, a lot of us, we wanna be flashy, we wanna be seen, all the rest of it. God is going, are you faithful? I've asked you to do something. Did you do it? You gotta ask that question. God, what have you asked me to do? Am I doing what you're asking me to do? If you are, then you're fine, you're faithful. That's the most important thing, you know? I love that. So what's the opposite of being faithful? Unfaithful. Very good. First Chronicles 5.23 says, but the people of the half-tribe of Manasseh were numerous. Verse 25, but they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and prostituted themselves to the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. How many think that's kind of stupid? The reason why God destroyed these people is because they were unfaithful. So what do these people do? Emulate them. They copied them. They did the same thing. What's the lesson? Don't copy these guys. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, who took the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half a tribe of Manasseh into Israel. Listen, life has enough battles, but when you and I are unfaithful to God, God will raise up enemies to come against us. How many think, I don't need that? I got enough troubles. I don't need to be causing myself more grief. And that's exactly what happens. So, then, you know, I read here in First Chronicles 5, 
uh, 19. Look what it says. How is faithfulness demonstrated? Well, verse 19 and 20 answer the question. They waged war against the Hagrites, Jether, Naphish, and Nodab. And they were helped in fighting them, and God handed the Hagarites and all their allies over to them because they cried out to him during the battle, and he answered their prayers because they trusted in him. Can I just tell us that one of the marks of a faithful person is someone who believes God, trusts God, and does what God says. That all makes sense. And it all comes down to, am I a faithful person? And I'm going to tell you right now, when we set our hearts on seeking God, something happens inside of us. That's the most important ingredient. If I tell you right now, if you want to have the most successful 2016 possible, I would say this. Here it comes. Set your heart on seeking God. Just write that down. Set my heart on seeking God. That's all you got to do. In 2016, if you say, Lord, I'm going to set my heart on seeking you. I want to be faithful to you this year. I want you to work in my life. I'm going to keep seeking your face. God is going to honor your life in 2016. You just watch. You say, well, is that going to not have any battles? Sure, there are going to be battles. But you know what I found out with God? Think of King Hezekiah. He was a godly king. He brought renewal and restoration and revival to his nation. Fourteen years later in his reign, he'd been serving God faithfully. It said Sennacherib, king of Assyria, rose up against him. I want to just say this. All the kingdoms around Judah fell to the Assyrians except for one kingdom. Ninety percent of Judah fell. Ninety percent of their villages fell. But the city of Jerusalem did not fall. And then we heard Hezekiah. And you've read this in your Bible. He cried out to God and God sent an angel during the night and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that were besieging Jerusalem. And God said, the daughter of Zion has shaken her head at Assyria. In other words, this inept backwater little province was able to stand against the world empire because she trusted in God. Folks, are you hearing the message? Real simple, set your heart on seeking God. Be faithful to him, and God will watch over you in 2016. But if you do your own thing, well, unemployment's rising in our region, problems are occurring left, right, and center, marriages are still falling apart. I'm watching it. Are you not? What am I saying to you? Set your heart on seeking God. Be faithful to him, and you will not be disappointed in 2016. Let's stand. Simple little message from a very obscure book, right? A list of names, but all of those names have a story to tell, did they not? What can we learn from them? I think quite a bit. We can learn lessons, great lessons. We can learn lessons from people's lives. We can learn from other people. And if I have to learn just from my own experience, I'm going to have a lot of problems. I'm going to learn from other people's mistakes, what to avoid. I want to learn from other people's successes, what to do. The Bible teaches you that. With every head bowed this morning, let me ask you the question. 2016 is starting. Is there anyone here who say, you know, Pastor, I heard all of this. I love this. Something is resonating inside of my soul. I want to seek God. 
but I've never known him. I've never met him yet. I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I want to know God this year. I want to get to know him. I can't think of a better way to start than to get introduced to Almighty God. And then you could begin to seek him. Is there anybody here, you've never given your life to Christ, but you'd like to do that today? Just raise your hand. I just want to pray with you today, right where you're at. Is anybody? Okay, God bless you. Anybody else? Okay, that's great. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, let me ask a different question. Here's the question. Jeremy, would you pray with this gentleman after the service? Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, appreciate that. Let me ask the question here. How many here today say, you know what, this year, Pastor, I want to set my heart on seeking God. That's me today. I want to make sure that in 2016, I'm going to be a person of faith. I'm going to be a faithful person. It's going to keep me from making the wrong decisions. I want to make those good decisions in 2016. I'm going to set my heart on seeking God. That's you. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you. I got my hand up. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be here tomorrow night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to say, Lord, I want to start this year seeking your face. I'm going to encourage you to come. Come. I'm not asking you to do this every single night. Just if you can come one, come one. If you can come two, come two. If you can come three, come all. Just say, Lord, I purpose in my heart to seek your face this year. Let's see where we go with this. And I believe God's going to watch over you. That's not just the only time. We're going to make this a way of life. We're going to seek God. So, Lord, I thank you this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. That We want to be sensitive to seeking your face, to setting our hearts on seeking your face. We want to make that effort because we know that knowing you is the most important person. And knowing you and the way you operate and understanding your ways, Lord, we're going to be far better off than doing our own thing. And so we're submitting our souls to you, Father. We pray this year it will be the most dynamic, most eventful, the most prosperous 20 uh, year we've ever had in our life to date. I'm, I'm believing for that. We're going to see greater things than we've ever seen before because we have set our hearts on seeking your face. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.